Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for February 15th, 2019. I'm Brian Cardile, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast, reviewing salient appellate and constitutional law cases and questions. This week, we'll hear two sides of an Establishment Clause case that will be argued for the U.S. Supreme Court later this month. The case is captioned the American Legion, First American Humanist Association, and the appeal centers around a 40-foot-tall concrete Latin cross in Bladensburg, Maryland, which memorializes the town and surrounding county's war veterans. The structure sits on public land and in a prominent spot on a median where busy highways intersect. It stood there for nearly a century, since not long after the First World War, and now the court will determine the memorial's future. A group of plaintiffs asserted that the cross clearly evokes the central Christian theology of Jesus Christ's crucifixion and resurrection and therefore violates the Establishment Clause as a tacit endorsement of Christianity by the county, which funds maintenance of the monument. The challengers also cited the public's funding of cross maintenance as an improper entanglement between government and religion, and a split Fourth Circuit agreed. But now the High Court gets its chance to weigh in. In recent terms, the court has been fairly solicitous to Christian parties bringing First Amendment claims. Think of the Colorado cake maker from last term and pregnancy center proprietors from California. So most venturing forecasts of the outcome here seem to think the court will allow this monument to stand. But what's less certain is just how they'll go about doing so, since Establishment Clause jurisprudence can be charitably described as something of a muddle. All sorts of different tests and standards have been applied by the high court in recent decades, generally coalescing around two competing ideas. One, that the Establishment Clause prevents the government from endorsing religion, or at least any particular religion, or the more narrow approach, which holds that the clause is meant only to prevent the government from coercing religious faith and practice. So this case and its very clearly presented constitutional question might just give the court a chance to articulate a uniform and predictable Establishment Clause approach. For more on all of that, I'll be joined by two renowned experts on the First Amendment and its religion clauses. First, we'll hear from Professor Alan Brownstein from UC Davis School of Law, who joined on an amicus brief supporting the challengers here. Then, Professor Richard Garnett from Notre Dame Law School, who thinks the Supreme Court should reverse the Fourth Circuit here. But before hearing from our guests, let me remind you, as always, that listeners are encouraged to claim one hour of California CLE credit for having tuned into our program. It's easy enough to do. Just find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. Complete that, and one hour of CLE credit can be yours. I appreciate you going to find those CLE tests and completing them and remitting the nominal fee to do so because it helps us continue to provide the podcast outside of our usual paywall. Okay, without any further ado, let's get to our opening briefs. Other news from the Supreme Court, the Justices Conference today for the first time this month and took an unusual step by granting certiorari before judgment in the case involving a proposed citizenship question being placed on the 2020 census. A district court in New York had blocked the question's inclusion and now with today's order, the matter will skip over the Second Circuit to be heard and presumably decided by the High Court this term. It was a fairly slow week in both the Ninth Circuit and California's appellate courts and one ruling Monday a federal panel affirmed that the Department of Homeland Security can largely disregard environmental law requirements in undertaking the construction of barriers along the southern border. And in the California Supreme Court, an unusual Friday opinion filed this morning, as our friend Horvitz and Levy's David Edinger wrote for his blog at the lectern. The ruling was the first in seven years to file on a day besides the court's usual Monday-Thursday opinion release schedule. But the decision was not otherwise terribly noteworthy. It answered an arcane question referred over by the Ninth Circuit relating to affiant availability in limited civil cases. The justices all agreed that generally, but not categorically, such affiance must be available in the manner described by the Code of Civil Procedures, Section 98A. That unanimous cohort included new Justice Josh Groban, plus Justice Pro Tem Martin Jenkins, soon to decamp for his new role as Judicial Appointment Secretary under new Governor Gavin Newsom. Professor Alan Brownstein is a nationally recognized First Amendment scholar who has written widely on the Establishment and Free Exercise Clauses and is the Buchaver and Bird Chair for the Study and Teaching of Freedom and Equality at UC Davis School of Law. He joins us now to describe why the Latin cross commemorating Prince George's County, Maryland's war dead is a violation of the Constitution's Establishment Clause. Professor, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. So you have written um, voluminously on, on First Amendment issues and, and on the First Amendment's Establishment Clause. 
So uh, let's let's dive into it. Uh, it's the first line of the First Amendment to the Bill of Rights, providing that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. So uh, before sort of applying that clause to any sort of freedom of religion or establishment clause case like the one here, you want to have a good understanding of what is sort of meant by it, what principles are entailed in that uh, constitutional provision. So in your view, you know, what are those principles? What ideas all are wrapped up in, in those few uh, words of the, of the Establishment Clause? To, to provide you an answer that will fit within our time constraints, I'm going to refocus your question to ask what the Establishment Clause means with regard to limits on government speech relating to religion, because there's lots of other issues that arise under the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause, but they have to be beyond the scope of our conversation. Sure. So, you know, the discussion here will be uh, directed at the cross case, which is the basis for our conversation, and the underlying issue in that case is, does the Establishment Clause impose constitutional limits on government speech relating to religion? Uh, and I think there are a variety of principles and values that are at issue, that are in play, when government expresses a religious message. One of those is a religious equality principle. It's also sometimes described as an anti-preferentialism principle. The basic idea here is that the government cannot assign a higher official status to some faiths over others. Or to put it another way, the people of all faiths or no faith must be treated by government as if they are of equal worth and deserving of equal respect as the people of larger faiths uh, or majoritarian faiths. So the Establishment Clause means we have no hierarchy of faith in the United States. Uh, there's no state religious orthodoxy. It also means that it's not the government's business to determine religious truth. We don't decide the truth of religious tenets at the ballot box. There's that famous quote that the very purpose of the Bill of Rights was to withdraw certain subjects from the vicissitudes of political controversy. And the Establishment Clause serves to remove questions about religious truth, modes of worship, the answer to transcendent questions about the existence of God or the attributes of God, all of those are taken out or off the political table and are not to be determined by majoritarian vote, either at the legislature or directly by the people. Another aspect of the Establishment Clause that's relevant to this case is that the government doesn't have the authority to use its voice to influence religious belief and practice. Our Constitution commits us to a legal regime that's grounded in religious voluntarism. Religion is the business of the individual and the voluntary association that they create or that they join. It's not the business of the state. So I think those are the primary principles and values that are in play in this case. Sure, and I think they illustrate a, a one core difference between the the opposite parties in, in this case. In, in reading some of the briefing put forth by the petitioner and, and their supporting Amici, it seems that their idea of what the Establishment Clause limits is more sort of affirmative action on the part of the government or more sort of concrete action. And I realize we're talking about a tall concrete cross here. Um, so I perhaps use the wrong word there, but more sort of a affirmative action in terms of maybe requiring mandatory religious participation or the government officially endorsing and, and acting in cooperation with a, a given church. More affirmative actions like that on the part of the government are, are the sorts that the petitioner will say are the ones that go over the Establishment Clause line as opposed to things like just preferring one religion to another or offering some sort of maybe tacit endorsement. But I take it you think that's reading the, the clause into a much of a restricted sense, yes? Yeah, I think the proponents of uh, uh, keeping the cross, proponents of a narrower vision of what the Establishment Clause means, focus on two things. Uh, one, they 
would like to see the Establishment Clause limited to government action that, as you say, affirmatively coerces individuals to do something that's inconsistent with their conscience. So if the government requires you to uh, participate in a prayer service, that would be considered coercion and a violation of the Establishment Clause. I think the Establishment Clause means more than that. Uh, That vision of the Establishment Clause recognizes the constitutional commitment to religious liberty, but it entirely ignores the constitutional commitment to religious equality and non-preferentialism. It basically says the government can say things that promote, endorse particular faiths and consequentially suggest that other faiths are less important, are deserving of less respect, don't deserve the same kinds of acknowledgement that the large majoritarian faiths do, uh, and that those decisions don't raise constitutional concerns. Uh, And I think they do. Uh, I think uh, there's an equality dimension to the Establishment Clause. It certainly exists to promote religious liberty. That's part of the meaning of the clause. That's part of the principles on which it's grounded. But it also exists to prevent government from expressing preferential messages that favor certain faiths and not others. Again, to me, this core idea is, is the government treating people of all faiths and no faith as if they are of equal worth, and is it extending the same respect to these minority faiths that it extends to adherence of larger majoritarian faiths. Maybe take a minute or two to sort of review the most salient points in in this doctrine, because in in reviewing Establishment Clause cases, it becomes clear that at different points, the court has sort of emphasized uh, more or less some of those different dimensions and principles that we've talked about in cases like sort of the seminal Lemon versus Kurtzman 1971 case establishing the, the Lemon test that folks generally first think of when thinking of Establishment Clause cases. The the test there, a three-part test, can sort of be summed up by preventing, sort of being more along the lines of what you're describing, preventing government action that sort of has the effect of advancing religion. But then subsequent cases, like most recently the, the town of Greece case from 2014, sound more in that anti-coercion type nature where I think Justice Kennedy wrote an opinion saying basically that the government can't coerce you into religion. That's what the Establishment Clause means. I guess why has this particular clause in this doctrine eluded any sort of clear articulation of a, a standard test. And, and I guess walk me through what are the most prominent tests that, that have been applied by the court. I mean, I think the court has struggled with interpreting the Establishment Clause because both religious religion clauses of the First Amendment implicate a variety of different values. And those values don't always point in the same direction. So interpreting the religion clauses and applying them to a pluralistic society like the United States, I mean, that's a challenge. And the court certainly has not, has not come up with a consensus test that r- represents a solution to that problem. So the tests that have uh, been considered and still have some, I think, precedential force, one was the Lemon Test, which you mentioned, which asked whether the government's conduct serves a secular purpose and whether its primary effect is to advance or inhibit religion. There's also a coercion test, which interprets the Establishment Clause more narrowly and asked whether the state is coercing anyone to support or to participate in religion or its exercise. There's also the endorsement test, which was authored by Justice O'Connor, and it asks whether the state violates the Establishment Clause when it sends a message to non-adherents that they're outsiders, not full members of the political community, and an accompanying message to adherents that they are insiders, favored members of the political community. Uh, My argument parallels the endorsement test to some extent, but also there's a equal treatment standard that the court has announced in cases like Larson versus Volante, where it says the clearest command of the Establishment Clause is that one religious denomination cannot be officially preferred 
over another. And I thought, think either that equal treatment standard or some kind of endorsement standard supports the kind of argument that I'm making. The Lemon Test does as well. Certainly, the Lemon Test is in disrepute. Uh, I think there's a clear majority of the court that no longer thinks it's an adequate standard for adjudicating establishment clause claims. It still has a lot of precedential force, but I don't think it's very convincing or persuasive to the current majority on the court. So I see this battle, this conflict between a coercion framework, a coercion test that suggests that whenever the government is not using the force of law to force people to change their behavior, the Establishment Clause imposes no constraints on what the government says. Well, I think government messages can influence religious belief. They can assign status uh, to religious individuals and communities, suggesting that certain religious communities are of a higher status and others don't really deserve the same level of acknowledgement and respect as favored faiths. I think the Establishment Clause applies to those kinds of concerns and issues as well. Okay, so to sort of whittle it down here, you think maybe the core fight is just going to be over whether it's okay for the government to endorse but not coerce religion? Um, or if it's, Yeah, uh, although, you know, the, well, there's a lot of confusion as to what endorsement means. I think you know, this case is actually a simple case because while some cases involving religious displays raise some difficult questions of interpretation, as to exactly what the display means and whether or not the government was being more kind of ecumenical and expansive in its acknowledgement or its endorsement of different beliefs and faiths. This case is a standalone Latin cross, and you know, there is just no question that the cross is the central symbol of Christianity, and it invokes the you know, most foundational theological claims of Christianity. That's what the cross is. It is the expression of the central tenets of the Christian faith, and it is the primary icon for identifying people or institutions or associations as Christian. Maybe let's move to that sort of um, what the the cross here, what the structure means, what the best way is to define it. There seems to be some sort of semantical warring in the competing briefs as to what the best way is to, to understand what this structure is and how to understand it. This uh, very tall, as you say, Latin cross sitting at the, the center of Bladensburg in, in Maryland. You know, the petitioners will say this is a war monument, which it is, that, okay, is also a cross, but it's, you know, a cross at least in large part because Crosses were erected on, in, in battlefields in France after soldiers died, and, and wooden crosses were put up that were eventually made permanent in, in, in permanent cemeteries in France. We should note also that Stars of David were erected in those permanent battlefields. But So there's like a historical founding, a historical basis for why the cross was chosen in 1925 when the memorial was put up. And so it, you have to kind of see it as more of a historical artifact and less of a religious one. And, you know, the competing briefs will say, well, that all can be true, but the first thought and, and the principal reason of using the cross is its relation to Christianity and the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the resurrection believed in by Christians. I guess, how, how do you think folks should, should just describe the structure we're talking about and, and understand it? Well, I don't think you can separate the profound religious and theological meaning of the cross, which is its primary meaning, from some secondary meanings that uh, exist because of the way the cross is being employed in a particular context. And this is particularly true when the cross is being used to memorialize people who fought and died for our country. I mean, there's a reason why crosses are on headstones and are at grave sites, uh, because they're expressing this religious message that the person who perished is a Christian, and because of their religious beliefs, uh, they can aspire to go to heaven. You know, they 
recognize this core idea that underlies Christianity that the Son of God died on the Son of God died on the cross. Uh, he rose from the dead, and he provides Christians the possibility of eternal life. And that's a very appropriate message to place on a gravesite, just like it's appropriate to recognize soldiers who fought and died who are of different faiths and for whom that message simply doesn't reflect their beliefs or their identity. I mean, the Department of Defense today gives veterans who are buried in national cemeteries the choice of selecting among, I think it's over 50 belief symbols now, to place on their headstones. The Department of Defense doesn't do that because it believes that a Latin cross is an appropriate memorial for all of these soldiers who hold very, very different beliefs and identify themselves, not as Christians, but perhaps as Jews or Muslims or Buddhists or Hindus or non-believers, atheists or agnostics. And the recognition by the Department of Defense is that every veteran deserves to be memorialized in a way that's meaningful to them. And the reality is that a Latin cross is a very profound religious icon that's of great significance to Christians, but it isn't an effective, meaningful, adequate memorial for people of other faiths who have sacrificed to the same extent as Christian war did. Um, can we just talk about one other, I think, fairly salient fact here, and that's the longevity of the cross. It's been around as we've spoken about since 1925, so a good 94 years now. And in previous cases, historical practice has, has seemed to play into the court's analysis. In the case we mentioned, Town of Greece, that uh, there, the court okayed a legislative prayer before a prayer before a legislative session, based at least in part on some long history of its being included in such contexts. Uh, previously, in 2005, in a case that seems similar to this one, the court okayed a, a structure of the Ten Commandments in or nearby the Texas Capitol, based also in part on its having, like this structure, been around for a long time, having been donated several decades earlier. I guess, how do you think? that the, the fact that the crust has been there for so long, and I, I suppose, or at least petitioner's claim, hasn't really been complained over by anyone to this point, um, factors into the constitutional analysis. Well, there are really two separate questions here. One, you could be engaging in an originalist analysis and in interpreting the Establishment Clause, and you would ask, what kind of government messages about religion were accepted by the polity in 1791 when the First Amendment was drafted uh, and ratified. And that's really the argument that's presented in town of Greece, where the, it's not just that the practice is longstanding, but it's a practice that was accepted at the time that the First Amendment was adopted. And that suggests that the original understanding of the Establishment Clause was not to prohibit government from expressing these kinds of messages. I'm not an originalist. I think that's an inadequate uh, methodology for interpreting the Establishment Clause. The other question that's raised by the longevity of the display or the monument uh, is an argument, and this is an argument that's raised by Justice Breyer, uh, other jurists, and certainly other scholars and commentators. And the argument here is that when you have a monument like this one that has been around for almost 100 years, it's very divisive to require the government to take it down. That, that engenders some of the religious divisions that the Establishment Clause hopes to avoid. So some people have suggested that a way to resolve this case is to interpret the Establishment Clause in a way that makes it clear that if you wanted to put up a 20 or a 40-foot Latin cross as a war memorial, that is, the state wanted to do that, that would be prohibited by the Establishment Clause today. But displays that were erected hundreds of years ago, decades ago, might be allowed to continue to exist. Uh, they would not have to be removed 
simply because that the recognition that it's there, people are accustomed to it, that suggests that there would be significant disruption and division if the court was, the course was removed under court order. And I think you know, that argument has some persuasive force to it. If the court said, uh, we're not going back in time over 100 years to police the decisions that were made by government at that time, maybe when this cross was erected, the government that erected it wasn't sufficiently sensitive to the equality concerns of religious minorities, um, but the course has been here for 100 years, uh, and right now we're really not going to accomplish anything in terms of uh, promoting the ability of people of different faiths to live and work together in our society by taking it down. On the other hand, I think if the court issues a decision that suggests that it's perfectly appropriate for the government to express religious messages, whether directly or through uh, monuments, icons, and displays, and there are no constitutional constraints on government favoring certain faiths over others when it erects those displays or communicates that, those messages, I think that will have very negative consequences uh, for the integration people of different faiths in our society. Um, it will be an invitation for people to use the power of the government to reinforce their own religious beliefs and to try to influence others uh, to act in accordance with their beliefs. Uh, and it will send a message to religious minorities that if you want to be treated with the same respect that's afforded to majoritarian religious groups in our society, you need to live in a community where there's enough people like you, where you're a large enough constituency, so that the political powers uh, of government will have to take account of your presence. They simply can't ignore your existence. Um, but I would consider that an unfortunate consequence of constitutional decisions in this area. I don't think people should be confronted with the choice of living in a community where their status is a matter of political judgment and deliberation. Because if, if that becomes uh, the reality for uh, our society, then people will fragment themselves uh, along religious lines. We want to make sure that they live in a community where there's a sufficiently large number of adherents of their faith so that the government has to take their existence seriously. I uh, can't simply ignore their interests or their status in the community. We had spoken before recording about the potential fallout for of a, a ruling that restricts the Establishment Clause such that it would have no quibble with a cross of this nature being erected today. Uh, and you say are not especially sanguine with, I guess, the sort of trend line of constitutional jurisprudence and government in the area of, uh, I guess, religious diversity and religious pluralism. Do you, I guess, could you spin that out a bit and in, in, in why you think um, at the moment we might be looking forward to some problematic times in, 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 in terms of religious diversity and, and free religious exercise by um, non-majoritarian adherents? I think um, since you know, maybe 1960 or so, we saw a resurgence on the court of a commitment to both protecting religious liberty and protecting religious equality uh, under the religion clauses of the First Amendment. So, you know, for a long time, the free exercise clause was not taken seriously uh, by the courts. And it's not till Sherbert versus Werner in the 1960s that you have a court shifting direction and indicating that when government imposes substantial burdens on religious exercise, that abridges a fundamental right, and the government has to justify its actions under rigorous review. That same court, who breathed, uh, court that breathed new life into the free exercise clause, also rigorously interpreted the Establishment Clause both in limiting financial support of religious institutions and also 
protecting religious minorities from government actions and expression that would undercut their status in the community and would suggest that other faiths deserve more attention, more preferential treatment than the minority faiths do. So, you know, the same court that decides Sherbert versus Werner decides Engel versus Vitali, the case that strikes down the regent's prayer uh, in New York. I think uh, the court at that time was correctly interpreting the First Amendment. It was rigorously, vigorously uh, interpreting both clauses, the free exercise clause and the establishment clause, to limit government's ability to interfere with religion and to limit government's ability to promote religion. I think the court has been retreating from both of those positions. You know, in Employment Division versus Smith, the court dramatically undercut the utility of the free exercise clause to protect individuals against state interference with their religious practices. And over the last 30 years or so, the court has eroded the meaning of the Establishment Clause and assigned the Establishment Clause less and less importance. You know, far fewer government actions are subject to serious constitutional scrutiny and review under the Establishment Clause than was true 50 years ago. I think that's a mistake. I think government does religion very badly. And I think constitutional parameters that limit what government can do, either to interfere with religion or to promote religion, are really important guarantees that allow the people in our society to worship as they please, to feel that they are recognized as individuals of comparable status with everyone else. You know, we have a society that is at least as religious as any other Western democracy, and we're certainly uh, as pluralistic, if not more pluralistic, than any other Western democracy. And I think the First Amendment of the, of the Constitution is one of the reasons why we've been able to protect religious liberty, maintain religious equality, demonstrate our commitment to religious pluralism better than most other societies that have been struggling with the same issues. Uh, and I think if we read the religion clauses of the First Amendment to mean too little so that government's relation to religion, church-state issues, are almost always resolved by political deliberation rather than constitutional adjudication. I think we end up undermining both religious liberty and religious quality to the detriment of our society. Maybe just one, one last one for you. If the, the court does follow sure. the course that you describe of, of maybe giving short shrift to the Establishment Clause, not uh, applying a, a, a robust Establishment Clause, and, and says this cross is, is not problematic under this you know, new articulation of the Establishment Clause doctrine we'll, we'll articulate here. You know, do you think that going forward, there might be a, a, subsequent, a subsequent case where a party petitions to have a different religious symbol erected sort of on the same ground as this one to... I mean, one would be surprised if that happened, if the court uh, issues an opinion that suggests that there are no constitutional constraints on the government's ability to, to express religious messages uh, through monuments or displays. I think people of other faiths uh, will ask government, and at least some communities, whether uh, it will construct, erect, or de a display, or deliver a message uh, that acknowledges their beliefs and their identity as a religious community. If the government says no to those requests, I think that's a different case than this one. It's even more directly a challenge to religious equality, Maybe that would get the court's attention. I mean, it's unfortunate, but the reality is that when government has power, it uses it. And when government exercises power, uh, often that power is abused. Um, so if the government has the power to promote and influence religious beliefs and identity, 
what will happen is that some constituencies and some communities will urge the government to erect displays, communicate religious messages that promote the beliefs of majoritarian faiths and uh, members of minority faiths won't be able to challenge the government's doing that or that they will be able to do to try to achieve some semblance of equality and equal respect is to ask government to provide the same kinds of acknowledgments and displays and messages for their beliefs and to reflect their religious identity. And then we'll see how governments respond to those requests, and if they deny them, how the court adjudicates those denials. Professor Alan Brownstein from UC Davis School of Law. Thanks very much for being on our podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. The American Legion and our next guest, Professor Richard Garnett, argue that the Establishment Clause does not restrict governments from erecting the sorts of memorials at issue in the American Legion case. Like Professor Brownstein, Professor Garnett is a noted scholar on the issues of freedom of speech and religion and constitutional law more generally. He is the Paul J. Shearl and Fort Howard Corporation professor from the University of Notre Dame Law School in South Bend, Indiana. Professor, welcome to the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So we might mention first just how clean of a constitutional question is is presented here, unlike some previous cases. Here we have you know, a prominent Latin cross and uh, also a prominent public space. That differentiates it from, say, a similar-sounding case from about 10 years ago dealing with a cross in the middle of the Mojave Desert, not terribly far from here. Um, that cross, I've been by it, it's still there, and it was ruled permissible by the court there. But I think there was a land transfer from the Park Service to a private party there that sort of complicated the question. But here, there are really no complications, right? Uh, you're exactly right. So this is probably the cleanest religious symbols case that the courts had since the, since the two Ten Commandments cases, which were actually before Chief Justice Roberts even came on the court. So now this is an opportunity for the court to bring some clarity, perhaps, to an area that, that most observers think is a little murky. Yeah, and speaking of lack of clarity, you mentioned those Ten Commandments cases. I hadn't realized this, but in reviewing the, the, the cases, those came out on the same day, both involving Ten Commandments statues on public ground, and came out different directions. One saying that the structure could stay, and one saying had to be taken down. I understand how, how exactly. So, I mean, it's, it's fair to say the the doctrine here is not especially clear. Yeah, that was that was an interesting day. In fact, if memory serves, that was Chief Justice Rehnquist's last day on the bench, and he quipped when they announced the results that there were ten opinions in the two cases, which he thought was interesting since there are only nine justices. But. Um, what happened in a nutshell was you had a, a 5-4 ruling in each case, uh, and one justice moved from one majority to the other. You had a majority saying that uh, a particular display in Kentucky was unconstitutional, and then you had a different majority saying that a different display in Texas was permissible. And, you know, the, the, the differences came down to various justices' different reactions to certain aspects of the context and the history, right? So the display in Texas had been up for a long time, and the one in Kentucky had, was, was of relatively recent vintage. And the one in Kentucky had uh, apparently been the product of sort of several efforts by officials to get the Ten Commandments up, whereas the one in Texas was really, most people thought, kind of part of the promotional campaign for the Charlton Heston movie way back in the day. So Justice Stephen Breyer, I think, had the controlling opinion, and he was pretty candid when he said, look, there's no test we can apply here. There's no rule. It's just a matter of exercising what he called legal judgment. And I'm, you know, Stephen Breyer's a really smart guy, but it's for lower courts and for litigators, it's, it's hard to operate in a context where, you know, the right answer depends on one justice's sense of how things balance out in, in his or her legal judgment. It's certainly the case that there are certain areas of constitutional jurisprudence that are less clear than some others. But why do you think that, that the Establishment Clause doctrine seems to be particularly uh, immune to you know, any one set standard? Is it be, does it have anything to do with I mean, it seems like there are different sorts of government action that really might um, 
you know, necessitate some different judicial treatment here, a memorial, but other instances, maybe prayer or coerced prayer or other instances of, say, yep. government funding? Is it just a, a function of different government sorts of actions? Yeah, I don't think it's that the First Amendment or law and religion generally is completely unclear in terms of the court's doctrine. I mean, the court's rule uh, with respect to free exercise exemptions is actually pretty clear. It's, it's controversial in some quarters, but it's clear. For the last, you know, 17, 18 years or so, the court's doctrine with respect to things like school voucher programs has been quite clear. It, it wasn't in the 70s and 80s, but it is now. It's pretty straightforward. The school prayer cases have kind of gone away. It's just settled that official teacher-led school prayer, prayer composed by government officials is impermissible. But where they've really struggled uh, is with these sort of religious symbols and displays and so on in the public square. And I think one reason this is difficult is because we have, on the one hand, a history in the United States in which religious symbols and expression and names uh, are ubiquitous. It's, it's always been the case in the United States that there are towns that you know, bear the name of saints. I mean, think of the town of, or think of Corpus Christi in Sacramento. You know, we're never gonna, no court's ever going to say they have to change their names. Presidents have been saying, so help me God, the Ten Commandments are on the wall of the Supreme Court. So this is an area where any effort to have kind of a strict separationist bright line rule would require such a dramatic departure from long-standing traditions and practices that the court's just not willing to do that. It would it would be too glaring. And you know, the court has to think about how its decisions are going to be perceived. At the same time, the justices are aware that we're a more pluralistic country than we used to be, and some would say we're a less religiously observant country than we used to be. And so, you know, at least some of the justices have worried about the marginalizing effects that some religious symbols might have. And that worry, you know, however commendable and well-meaning it is, it's, just, it's been hard to translate into usable doctrine for, for judges. I mean, how does the judge really know, and how do litigators know, whether a particular religious symbol, let's say a cross, is a permissible war memorial or is instead an unconstitutional endorsement of religion. It's very hard to know in advance what a court's going to say. And so this, again, is an opportunity, we'll see if they take it, for the justices to try to give some better guidance, perhaps, to, to lower courts, how to, how to navigate this middle ground where you know, we're not going to have we're not going to have established religion, but we're also not going to have a public square that's completely scrubbed of all religious symbols and expression. Sort of uh, determining as between this this structure being a, a war memorial or a, a clear religious symbol is it's, it seems to be a semantic battle going on in the briefs with uh, the petitioners wanting to to really qual you know describe it. Is, is more of a war memorial than a cross and vice versa in the other papers. And do uh, you think that sort of effort to distinguish the structure as one or the other is, is a sort of, you know, a, a fruitless endeavor? It's pretty clearly fully both a war memorial and a religious symbol, right? Exactly. I, I think it's, um, it's a mistake. And actually, it's, it's one that I think religious believers should be particularly careful to avoid. You know, we had these cases back in the, the 80s having to do with uh, holiday displays, Christmas displays, and there'd sometimes be these sort of convoluted arguments that, well, sure, there's a creche and the baby Jesus and the angels, but there's also a candy cane and a reindeer, and so it's not really a religious symbol anymore. But, you know, a nativity scene is a religious symbol no matter how many candy canes you put around it. Um, so same with the cross. I, you know, some, someone characterized the war memorial as having the shape of a cross, but it doesn't have the shape of a cross. It, it is a cross. And uh, the question is whether it's permissible to use a cross for that purpose. And I feel pretty confident the court will, will say that it, it is at least sometimes permissible to use that purpose, uh, use it for that purpose, rather. It, it's kind of like at Christmas time when the, poster, uh, the Postal Service sells all these commemorative stamps and one of them is always a traditional kind of Madonna and child nativity scene. But nobody would say, well, this is a stamp that has an image that bears a resemblance to the nativity. They would say, no, that's the nativity scene. 
and it's permissible to use because no one thinks the government's establishing religion. They're simply accommodating the desire of people to use a, a nativity-themed stamp at Christmas time. You know, here too, with, with uh, the war memorial crosses, I think courts can see that you know the the purpose of these displays is not to um, announce the the official establishment of Christianity. It's simply to draw on a long-standing practice in a country that you know had certain demographics of using crosses as memorials. I suspect that you know as history goes on and the country gets more diverse, you might people will, will choose to use different images and different symbols for for memorials like this. But that doesn't mean the old ones have to come down. We've spoken about how the the different tests that have been applied in past cases create sort of a muddle. There's uh, been a range of them. I think it kind of boils down, uh, as I read it at least, to the question of whether if there's a broader establishment clause described by, say, cases like Lemon, you know, whether it forbids government from effectively sort of endorsing or promoting a religion um, or based on sort of, you know, less... A strict test, like in the recent case, town of Greece, if instead the establishment clause only prevents government from sort of coercing folks into religious adherence or at least religious adherence to a certain variety of religion. Do you see that as a kind of core dispute here? I do. And and I'm, I'm one of those who thinks that a good place to start would be to actually kind of go back in history and say, okay, establishments of religion, they really were a thing that the founding generation uh, were familiar with. And the traditional markers of an established church were things like, you know, the the king picks the bishops, and um, officials, you know, write the Bible. Think of the King James Bible. And there are rules requiring you to financially support a particular church. And there might even be rules requiring you to attend a particular church at least a certain number of times a year. This is they were they were familiar with this kind of arrangement and they didn't want to have that at the national level. Where I think we introduced unclarity in the process is we broadened this idea of an established church to include all kinds of instances of just religion in the public space. And I don't think that's correct. That is the you know the the fact of there being religious expression or symbolism or values even in the kind of public square of a democracy that's that's not an established church an established church is when there's actual institutional entanglement as the lemon case put it where where government officials and religious officials are sharing authority where the government is intruding in the internal affairs of a church or vice versa those are establishments now we haven't had a whole lot of cases that present that we've had some in the United States and those are such an arrangement would be unconstitutional you know if if the if the president decided to set up a commission to figure out you know what the best songs to sing at the 10 a.m. mass were at my parish that would that would be an establishment of religion but i i fear that this expand expanding idea of establishment has made it harder to come up with doctrine that judges and litigators can actually use. Then I suppose walk me through what the the doctrine that you would prescribe might be that would uh, you think clearly articulate the the principles you think underlie the establishment clause and that, that and it's a, doct- a doctrine that could be applied by courts clearly. And particularly, I'm curious to sort of suss out just just you know where I guess just exactly how that doctrine would treat a cross of this nature being, say, erected today? Because a lot of your argument, it seems to me, relates to the tradition behind this cross and its longevity being around for a long time and that being part of the reason you wouldn't want to take it down. But it also seems like the doctrine you describe wouldn't have any constitutional problem with, you know, putting up, say, this sort of uh, monument uh, in you know the center of town to today to memorialize say modern war veterans. So I guess what you know what what is the constitutional doctrine that you you know, think should apply in? Yeah, well, let me uh, not to get too far in the weeds, but distinguish between two questions. So one question is, in a country like ours, in this current moment, you know what should officials do? What's the right thing to do? What what you know as a political debate? What kind of monuments would we want to see used? What kind of symbols do we think are appropriate? Um, 
most of the time in a democracy, we think that important questions that reasonable people can disagree about are settled politically through through votes and decisions and hearings and, and all that. It doesn't have to be the case, it seems to me, that things that we think are bad ideas are necessarily, constitu- necessarily unconstitutional. So I would expect, for example, that if, you know, a religiously diverse town uh, in the United States today uh, were to decide we're going to put up a memorial to say Gulf War veterans and we're going to put up a 90 foot tall kind of ostentatiously Christian display that politically I would like to see people work that out in kind of a spirit of civic friendship and say look that's not an appropriate recognition for you know the, the diverse men and women of our town who fought in that war. It's a different question when a federal court made up of unelected judges should say that a particular display that the people have decided to go with is unconstitutional. So what we're looking for now is is judicial doctrine, not so much the right answers politically, but the judicial doctrine. And and my view is that um, we we have two options. One would be to say, you know what, I know it would be disruptive, but a cross is a cross, and they may not be displayed on public property, period. Now, that seems to me to be a a rule that would be kind of inconvenient for the people who run Arlington National Cemetery, but it's a bright line rule. I said two options. I I should have said three. The second option is to say uh, everything up till now is grandfathered in, but from now on going forward, no crosses. This is the new rule, right? And again, that's going to be administrable. Everybody would be on notice, but I do think it would be kind of at odds with our public culture. So I, I think the better approach is one that's kind of been sketched out in opinions by uh, the late Justice Scalia and also by Justice Thomas, which is to say, look, when it, when it comes to the Establishment Clause, these, these passive symbols that don't involve any coercion, don't involve any entangling of power, don't involve any mandatory financial support for religious education, those just aren't establishments of religion. They might be bad ideas, but they're not establishments of religion. And I'm not saying I think the court is going to take that approach. I think there's going to be a whole lot of division among the justices. But it seems to me that if, if we're going to f- try to find a clear rule, that one seems preferable to me. Okay. I mean, just to push back a little bit on that, yeah, we are certainly fans of civic friendship here and the, the, the proper functioning of a, you know, of a representative democracy. Yeah, of course, majoritarian systems like representative democracies aren't always terribly responsive to minority groups. And so if you do have, say, a town that's less religiously diverse, say only maybe 5 or 10 percent um, or non-adherence to the majority's religion, that, that those are groups that the Establishment Clause, it seems to me, are is sort of designed to protect in that you know, the political system can't always you know, ensure that the sort of religious pluralism that is seems to me inherent in, in the Constitution can, can be affected just based on, on, on politics. Do you have thoughts on that? Right. Well, that's, I mean, it's, it's a, a great point. I mean, we one of the reasons why we have a Bill of Rights and why all the state constitutions have Bills of Rights is because we've made decisions in our political tradition to take certain questions off the table of, you know, to, to, to remove certain things from majoritarian politics, right? So, even if the majority really, really wants cruel and unusual punishment, they can't have it. The, the, the First Amendment's free speech clause, the whole purpose, we might think, was to say that, you know, unpopular ideas which don't enjoy the support of a majority, they're still protected. I mean, you wouldn't need free speech to protect majoritarian ideas. So you're right so far as it goes that our, we, we've decided to not simply rely on majoritarianism across the board. But I guess what I'd say is that unless the majority tries to impose what is actually an establishment of religion, so they're still in this area what I regard as kind of judgment calls about, you know, what's an appropriately welcoming symbol, that it's better to rely on politics than on hazy, uh, hazy judicial rules. I don't believe, I don't think anybody believes, that just because a majority in a particular jurisdiction actually wants to set up an officially established church, they should be able to. I mean, I don't care how much... You know, how many people in Indiana think that we ought to set up a commission to pick the hymns of my church? You can't do that. That's an establishment of religion. But I am, I, I'm presuming, and I realize lots of smart people disagree with me on this, I'm presuming that 
these these questions of displays by themselves, so not backed by actual official establishments, but just displays, commemorations, those aren't establishments. And if since they're not establishments, I don't think the anti-majoritarian impulse, if you want, uh, behind our Bill of Rights is really in, in play here. Uh, maybe one other piece of the, the clarity you'd like to see comes in terms of the sort of the standing threshold that you think that uh, challengers yeah. to government religious activity should have, you say, sort of psychological harms that might be inflicted on someone in Bladensburg, seeing the cross not being a, a Christian and feeling like the community sort of views them as an outsider, which, uh, you know, the courts have sort of recognized that psychological harm. I think Justice O'Connor in her idea of the endorsement type test here would recognize that you, know, you don't want government yeah. to make folks like outsiders. You, what, why do you think that those sorts of harms, you know, maybe shouldn't be given uh, standing in these sorts of claims? Well, you know, the, the standing doctrine, as you know, is, uh, is complicated, but the, the basic idea it stands for is that, you know, citizens have all kinds of government actions that they don't like, but you don't have standing to challenge them on constitutional grounds unless you are actually injured in fact in some kind of, concrete and redressable way. And the court, in my opinion, has been more kind of loosey-goosey with respect to standing in these religious symbols cases than it is in most cases. I mean, usually the fact that the government says or does something I don't like doesn't, in fact, says or does something that I think is unconstitutional. It makes me feel marginalized. It makes me feel like uh, an excluded person who doesn't count. That doesn't give me standing to, to sue. And I, I, my concern is that in these religious symbols cases, courts have been willing to say that the, mere, that the mere experience of observing a symbol that you wish wasn't there, that you think shouldn't be there, creates standing to challenge it. I think that that's an anomaly in constitutional law. There are a lot of things that the government's done that I think are unconstitutional that, that don't affect me. And there are things the government does that make a lot of people feel like outsiders. I mean, when, um, you know, when, when Andrew Cuomo arranged for the lights on top of the Freedom Tower to be lit up to celebrate New York's new abortion statute, I imagine a lot of pro-life people in New York felt really marginalized and excluded. But they don't, they don't have standing to, to sue and to complain about it, that their religious freedom or their free speech or anything else has been violated. It's just they're the minority, and so the majority view is that we're celebrating this, and that's a that's a, that's a fact of life in democratic politics. Now, again, what I'm saying is not that oh the majority always always gets its way. It doesn't, shouldn't. But outside of these areas that the Bill of Rights actually speaks to, it seems to me that we don't want to constitutionalize every objection that someone who happens to be in the minority on a particular issue. Uh, has to a to a display or to a piece of government expression or what have you. Maybe just one last one. We we've said that this case presents a pretty clear question, so that would seem like a good opportunity for the court to provide a clear answer. Do you think there will be sort of some new, clear, articulated standard resulting from this this case? Well, I just don't know. I I feel pretty confident that all nine of the justices will agree that the memorial does not have to come down. Some of the justices might think that it needs to be the land under it needs to be sold to a private group or something like that. We, we could see that. I suspect there'll be some justices, like perhaps Justice Breyer again, as he was in the Ten Commandments cases, who'll say, "Look, um, I'm not going to give you a rule, but this cross can stay up because it's old, and we all know that it's a war memorial. But if a new one goes up that's part of the culture wars, that one might have to go." Uh, I think that's where I think that's his view. The question, as I see it, is how many of the justices will agree with the Justice Thomas position that there is a bright line rule here that we can use. It's the no coercion test, and these passive symbols are not coercive. They're not part of the historical understanding of what an establishment of religion is, and therefore these cases are for politics. They're not for courts. Can we get <laughs> Will there be five for that? I just don't know. Okay. We'll, we'll wait and see, uh, but for now... Professor Richard Garnett from Notre Dame Law School. Thanks very much for being on our show. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thank you. With that, our show for February 15th, 2019 is complete. 
Thanks very much to both of my guests, Professors Alan Brownstein and Richard Garnett. Thanks also to my production staff here, principally Nick Perez. Thank you for tuning in. It is tremendously appreciated. Don't forget two things. One, that CLE credit is very easy to obtain for your having tuned into this program. If you go to dailyjournal.com, find this show, there should be a link to a short test you can take that takes you to another page where you can claim your credit. Also, don't forget to look for us on the various podcast streaming avenues that are out there by searching for a weekly appellate report or daily journal. Finding us there and rating and reviewing us and subscribing if you like what you hear is tremendously appreciated as it helps other folks find the show. I'm Brian Cardell. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Happy late Valentine's Day and early President's Day and have a great week. <laughs>